Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we talk about the technology behind the energy news and we review our weekly issue, which has just gone out. I'm the Rethink CEO, Peter White, and we have with us today Rethink Rethink Energy Editor, Harry Morgan. Hello. Uh, Solar Analyst, Andrews Wontanar. Hello there. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Greetings. On the show today, we'll give you a, a brief glimpse into our annual solar forecast, which is, uh, uh, has been uh, long arriving, but, uh, uh, and therefore is full of uh, lots of detail. Uh, we're going to discuss one particular long-duration storage play based on zinc air batteries. And we're going to talk about um, a new proposed hydrogen network to run across the Netherlands. Um, which is fairly advanced uh, compared to most other countries. As usual, Simon will also ask about anything that drew his attention in today's issue. But first, let's um, talk to Andres. Um, what are the key takeaways from our latest global solar forecast? Well, like you say, it took me uh, a rather long time to do it because I kept on thinking, well, I can't leave out that part and I can't not do that and this. And... and um, Really, a big thing that I did was I forecasted distributed and utility scale sectors separately. And I thought, well, I kind of have to do it on a per country basis as well. Um, And I guess that's one of the big questions is when does utility prevail? When does distributed prevail in terms of market share? And I I think it's pretty clear that right now distributed is gaining a lot of ground because that's the segment that's the most immediately responsive to power prices. Additionally, when you push up module prices, it affects utility scale projects disproportionately compared to rooftop, especially, you know, they all stop. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I expect that distributed is really gaining in for, for, for several years now, as we have this sort of sanctions disruption to um, global trade and just global inflation in general. Um, and then what, what you'll have as the economics picture becomes calmer, and especially as module costs decline, or rather go back to normal, um, with the whole polysilicon uh, bottleneck easing and widening quite dramatically, is utility scale will come back uh, as as sort of the dominant force for really the latter part of this decade. But I think from then on, it is just a constant, constant gain for the distributed sector, um, because it's really the utility scale sector that has the expertise right now that has the expertise, uh, that has the scale, that has the finance, and distributed is a lot more about um, really whether customers know what they're doing, um, whether there's regulation in place to support it, like net metering, or especially not just net metering, but also um, just a price, time of day pricing, um, combined with domestic storage especially, which is only just starting. Um, Also things like VPPs that I was talking about, I published a very long article about that uh, a couple of weeks back. So I think from then on, it's, it's a constant gain for distributed. And, and part of that as well is, is um, that there's not really that much you can do about transmission lines because they are ultimately lines of metal. And there's you can't do some fancy technology to do with cells and photovoltaics and conductors. You still need a huge long line of copper wire. Um, so utility scale will not have... You know, that's kind of an anchor around the cost of utility scale that isn't as severe for, for rooftop because obviously dist- uh, rooftop is being built where people live and work and consume power. So you don't need as much uh, transmission lines for that. Uh, so that's just, but that's just one part of the report. Another thing 
uh, that turned out to be very major when I crunched the numbers based on our previous hydrogen report. So another thing was hydrogen. And um, once you crunch the numbers on that based on our old hydrogen report, which is still perfectly valid, I mean, we say in that report that uh, global electrolyzer capacity reaches 4,754 gigawatts in 2050. Now, if you look at the so what I did was I asked myself, well, how much of that is going to be powered by solar and how much is going to be powered by wind? And of course, that depends on the local irradiation and wind speed metrics and also wind density if you're in, if you're in a nice place like coastal Brazil. So I came up with a little formula that looked at the irradiation metric, the wind speed, and, and sort of gauged from that how much uh, would it be worth making in terms of solar? How much would it be worth to do with wind? Uh, anyone listening to this who can hear a bird in the background, uh, Andres has a bird in, <laughs> in his office with him, and and it's uh, it's just part and parcel of, of the podcast. I'm um, afraid I moved can, to a barbaric can, land called Australia, and that's how we do things here, apparently. So. Yeah, and if you can recognise <clears throat> the bird, you, you win a prize, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so obviously in a place like northern Chile, you've got the best solar radiation in the world, so you'll have a lot of solar. But right now, we still see some wind being discussed for uh, green hydrogen complexes in northern Chile. And I think that's because um, wind obviously has a much more consistent generation profile. It does go up in the evening, in, in the evening and especially the night, um, compared to solar when there's nothing at night. Um, so solar is really something that's harder to use to keep a, an electrolyzer run, running all the time. And... I mean, there's all sorts of things going on here. Uh, as batteries become cheaper and more affordable, that makes it easier to integrate solar capacity because that's the one that needs more storage to keep something right. running. I'm going to constantly. stop you there because hmm. because you, you, you've been running this kind of constant. Uh, you know, I took this into account. I took that into account. It's true. Um, it, it 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 it's complicated. But I mean, I think that we have agreed as a group that. Um, a lot, a lot of people have been talking about um, consumers uh, self-consuming, uh, and and that was never really a possibility until battery came along, um, and and that's definitely on the rise, and we see that uh, peaking quite quickly. And then as these mega projects take over all around the world, a lot of them to do with hydrogen, we we, we see it swinging back to utility, and eventually by 2050, 60 percent of all um, of all solar energy coming from um, rooftop and community so uh, you know i think that's that's an established um uh, uh, uh pattern we're, we're pretty confident that that's what's going to happen hmm. and it, everything that happens in the energy scenario like the war in in the ukraine like the uh, hiked gas prices supports that happening sooner rather than later people want to people don't trust their utility supplier anymore they want to get off the utility supply they want the cheap supply uh, if they can afford to install solar they will and we're witnessing it everywhere all over the world and we've done various consulting projects on this uh, where we've got even more data so we're pretty confident that that's what's going to happen uh, what i'm i was impressed by this report is the amount the pure volume of solar um, when investors look at this, they'll be able to pick over the best deals because there's there's going to be an almost inexhaustible appetite to invest in this because while gas is expensive, this is so profitable. Um, and and the, the utilities that are dr driven on solar 
um, when you when you have an auction, uh, especially so America, Europe, and and key parts of the world, um, you're you're making massive profits on solar um, and wind, and and obviously wind is always part of the equation, and uh, and we 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 understand that, and and Andrew's put this correctly is that that. Um, you either put in, if you're going to work with solar alone, you've got to put in a lot more battery, and right now that's expensive. So if you work with uh, wind, you don't have to put in quite so much. So uh, I think that's um, to, to drive the hydrogen revolution. So that that's all pretty well explained. Um, if you want to look at that report, there's an executive summary. Uh, go to the website rethinkresearch.biz, click on energy, click on forecasts and data, uh, download the executive summary. If you don't buy it, um, you'll be relying on some other inferior uh, forecast for solar um, that hasn't gone into all this level of detail. And we've seen quite a lot of them. And their numbers are typically half the numbers of what's really going to happen. And uh, that means you could miss out on the, the next generation of, of, uh, of solar the solar revolution. Hmm. When it comes to really large numbers, if I can just make one additional comment, I mean, you could say we're on the higher end. We, we could, you could still make a more, an even more aggressive forecast than this. And something that caught my eye recently was that uh, Longi, which is the world's largest manufacturer, it said that uh, global installations could reach 1,000 gigawatts per year in 2030. Now, we expect that only happening eight years later than that. But the, uh, it's not something that you can totally laugh at. Because the manufacturing base is actually being developed as we speak. And I'll, I'll, I've covered that before in Polysilicon a bit, but I'll be doing another update on that as well. So it's just what I wanted to add. So we bumped briefly into uh, eZinc of Canada a few weeks back, and we thought it would be a good opportunity to um, interview the CEO, James Larson. And uh, I recommend you listen to the video. It's a very, um, a very interesting video. It's one of those... Um, problems that he solved um, where how to um, uh, make a zinc battery uh, rechargeable um, by effectively bypassing uh, a whole segment of uh, what what is um, classic battery uh, technology instead he splits it into two circuits and uh, he's introduced a kind of wiper blade so that as zinc forms on the uh, electrode it that's wiped off and falls under the force of gravity through the electrolyte into a separate circuit, which is the uh, discharging circuit. It's fairly ingenious. He explains it very well. Um, the example he uses is using it with wind, uh, and he shows a graph of all the energy over a, a month's period where the wind uh, um, was being used to supply a... Um, a, a region's load and um that there wasn't there were there were lapses in the wind for two or three days at a time so and his battery was managed was able to smooth those lapses over uh, and then go back into recharging uh, um, mode um it, it is a very interesting debate about whether or not um long duration storage will be uh, a completely new set of technologies and whether or not lithium iron will just get better and better until it takes that in its stride. Um, he doesn't seem to think so and he doesn't really think that long duration storage uh, will take off and be economically viable till about 2029, 2028, that kind of time frame. But uh, we have a little argument about that. Um, that that article, I mean, we, we come across alternative chemistry batteries all the time. Um, we believe in them. If you're an investor out there and someone knocks on your door saying, I've got a battery uh, that can 
compete with lithium iron on price, but doesn't have thermal runaway. And I can get it into production before 2024, 2025. Give that, give the, these people money because it's uh, it's going to be an opportunity, a major opportunity. We're fairly fairly sure of that. And what sort of scale are we talking about here? Is this is this utility scale, or is this or is this had to be sort of move towards more the home market for storage of these these hybrid batteries? I suppose if you're talking about pairing with wind, then it's going to be large scale, large scale uh, installations, no? Yeah, so he's talking about partnering with Wind, but really, it, it, he's actually only uh, selling this into um, into isolated communities. So those that are running off diesel. So economically, it only really competes with diesel at the moment. Um, but he's not even got an automated, a fully automated factory. They've just taken twenty five million. They're going to build a pilot automated um, manufacturing site. With that, that will drive the price down. That'll halve the price, um, and then they'll be going for another round of funding and drive the price down yet again uh, in the 2024 five time frame. So uh, then it will be then it will compete with grid grid scale, uh, and it will be ready for grid scale. But at the moment, this is really isolated communities. Think of an island or a campus or a uh, um, a um, a community which is um, which does which which runs on diesel. You know, there's plenty of opportunities there to keep this rolling for the next few years, but it has to make the step up economically and and, and go up the learning curve and become cheaper. Okay, so so when it's saying tw- when he's saying 2030, that's primarily because that's the time frame in which he sees his technology being developed and being cost competitive. So it's not necessarily a real reflection of the long duration. No, 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 market. not at all. No, he he's saying late 20s before anybody really needs long duration storage. And he's suggesting that long duration will be different from uh, from four hour uh, or 12 hour. And, it, and, and he's saying because of the design of his battery, he can do multi-day. Um, it kind of they've broken the the link between um, uh, between uh, uh, sort of power uh, and energy. So you can, you, if you, I mean, it's hard to describe the uh, the effectively the battery is is a pile of zinc at the bottom of the battery and it can get as high as you like and they can custom build it to support three four five six days and and so that's uh, that is definitely uh, pushing into the long duration area you yourself said most um grids will be able to support um renewables for quite a long while yet before they require long long duration storage yeah and i think you're right the the places where this isn't the case and i think this is obviously why you're seeing um them take um targeting these sort of remote markets is because yeah if you're if you're a remote market looking for something for 100 renewables then yeah you suddenly do need long duration storage that's why we're seeing sort of long duration storage needed in places like the, uh australia because there are now times of the day where you are getting 100 percent of your electricity from renewables so i think that's what that's where this that's where this goes it's not going to happen in markets like the uk germany um in the US, where suddenly you've got sort of 30, 40% renewables plodding towards 100% by 2035. It's it's those markets where suddenly you are seeing a grid that's fully green at certain points in the day. And that's when suddenly you start needing long duration, uh, short duration storage first, then medium duration, then long duration, I suppose, in the sense of this easing battery, sort of three days. But then sort of beyond that, you're moving towards more sort of seasonal storage, looking at uh, hydrogen potentially there. 
Uh, so I think yeah, this isn't seasonal. Seasonal. No, no, this isn't seasonal. But it is. A, it, it, you can see from the usage patterns that he demonstrates on the graphs. That, yes. that you could be charging for a month and then outputting for three days. So, so you know, you've got. It, you need a, a technology that can do that. Yeah. And right now, lithium ion wouldn't do that. Um, it, it, you know, you'd have to spend too much. I don't think lithium ion ever. I, I, I'm not convinced that lithium ion ever will. I think scaling it to that sort of size capacity. Um, especially if you're selling lithium ion, it, it doesn't make any sense when you can simply be just targeting um, consumer electronics, cons uh, electric vehicles, those sort of markets, which are obviously going to be a higher margin. So um, I don't think they're going to suddenly cut their costs dramatically so that they can enter this market, which is going to be in terms of capacity, uh, substantially smaller. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I believe that's a, a lot of that is investor confusion. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we've seen an almost a block on American projects after the the two moss landing heating events uh, i'm sure investors go whoa hold on well, that's a billion dollars worth of kit lying there unused what's going on and i, I think that's you know thermal runway um, at that scale is is a serious problem and, and they have to go back to the drawing board but but at the moment they're going back to the drawing board with lithium iron but these um these outliers that come up with with systems which have no thermal runway at all, uh, they have no propensity for generating too much heat, um, and there are we've 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 done about four or five of these. Um, they, 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 it's just a matter of how quickly they can get cheap enough, uh, and it's a race. It's a race to 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 until the car industry has plenty of batteries, which we don't see happening. In, well, it's not going to happen for a long time. Um, not, certainly not before 2027, but it could be substantially after that. Could I ask a question? Sorry if it's a bit too basic, but why exactly is it that the e-zinc uh, offering is more suited to long duration? Okay, so uh, it comes back to the design. Uh, they've effectively decoupled uh, energy and power. So uh, the, the, it's, it's not about the outputs, the total output, the total input. It can hold an awful lot. Um, it, uh, and it can charge, be charging for a long period and support outputting uh, and discharging for long periods. Um, there's a graph if you if you look at the, on the, at the story and look at the graph, it's very clear. You've got the the load from the e-zinc battery, the load from wind, um, the uh, uh, the excess wind, which is when when which is then charging the battery, and you can see the state of charge of the battery over a uh, a month. Um, and and you can see that the wind is inconsistent. The battery takes up the slack and delivers a flat load. Um, and it's just the particular inconsistencies of wind wherever that installation so, is. So you've I, actually I, got like yeah. a reservoir of storage material, which is, I'm not a battery designer, but that's different to how a normal battery works. Because normally two megawatt hours is twice as expensive as one megawatt hour, right? But it's not when you have that's this right. kind of storage medium, which reminds me of concentrated solar thermal, where once you build the heliostats and the and the and the rest of the mirrors and all put and the more tower, heat in, yeah, building yeah. more storage capacity is just an extra tank with more molten salt. You don't need to be build more mirrors. It's a sort of similar. Thing. I mean, that almost runs against this, and it is that it becomes slightly project based because if every time you make one, they're saying, "Oh, we might need a longer duration. Can you can you bespoke make it?" For that, um, then you're going to put more electrolyte in, and you're going to have more zinc in the total system. Um, but it doesn't see, you know, it's it's uh, it sounds like they can make this out of very 
uh, out of existing it's like making a car you know you're folding aluminium you're pressing things together you're you're doing things which we already know how to do very well um, the only thing is the intellectual property in the in the the process where you you have literally two circuits and um, and how they re ignite one another how they trigger each other so it's um he explains it very well in the interview the the, the story is a summary of the interview um, and um, you know, I can I can see his argument but I I think there's a lot lot that goes on in the world where people do things out of habit and lithium iron is definitely going to be one of those things where investors back back it out of habit for a long time in the same way people investors are still trying to put money into coal they they do it out of habit and they don't rethink the the situation and I, and I I definitely see lithium iron as much as Harry says it won't be suitable for um for long duration storage he he's right but it doesn't mean to say 50 or 60 percent of the installations won't try it um let's move on this is your your, your dutch piece yeah yeah it, 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 they've already got um a, a hydrogen gas infrastructure in place or they're starting to build it harry yeah so i mean they have got some pipeline in place already um this is gasony we're talking about um and the the news from a, well from a couple of weeks ago i was on holiday so it's only coming out now that we've written the story but um is that the dutch government is planning on re basically repurposing its natural gas infrastructure to produce the world's first national hydrogen ne hydrogen network uh, by 2031 um is planning on investing on 750 million uh, euros to do so, but the actual value of the project will be a lot larger and we uh, would expect quite a lot of investment from uh, private companies as well. Um, the big news about it is that 85% of this network will be composed of recycled natural gas uh, pipelines. Now, will they be dug up or will they just be lined or will they or a bit of each? It's not fully clear yet. So the... Um, when you're talking about actually converting the infrastructure, it, there's various reports of how intensive it is. Um, but largely what um, Gasney basically said is that it's just going to be a case of adding new valves um, to alter the operation pressure. Because these uh, pipes that they installed fairly recently, I think some of them were installed sort of recently, sort of 2015, 2016, um, because they're so modern, um, made of steel, they're actually already sort of equipped for hydrogen. Basically, what you need to do is install new valves. So all you need to do is excavate into where the valve is, change the valve so that you can change the operating pressure. Uh, there's no new no, no new compressors that would be needed, uh, and hydrogen would just be delivered into the network at the pressure that's required. So it's, it's a lot... So that's a fraction simpler. of the cost. It's a lot more simple than uh, installing a new pipeline or digging up the whole pipeline, having to line it and then do the same. So it's, it's a cost that could be up to 94% cheaper than building a new hydrogen-specific wow. pipeline. Um, the interesting, sorry, Simon. I, w I was led to believe that hydrogen leaked through metal, presumably including steel. So, uh, have they thought about? They must have thought about that. Well, yeah. So not not um, not this sort of steel. So this is um, it's, it's normally at these sort of junctions in the valves um, at those sort of pressure points where okay. you might see a leak. But like, leak is, is very rare. And Gasney have tested these. Um, pipelines in the past and they've shown no signs of leakage and they've obviously promised to do all the classic uh, safety tests beyond um beyond this 
And modern pipelines are very sensitive to a loss of pressure. And, yes, and, and the leak gives a loss of pressure. So it's not it's not like you know they've got to reinvent the wheel to make it work. I mean, hydrogen is a smaller atom and can leak out of smaller places, but really it can't leak through steel, Simon. It can only leak leak through a joint. Yeah, and it's very easy to detect in these modern pipelines. It's very easy to to, to detect whether or not there has been a leakage at some point. Of course. The the really interesting thing about this proposal from the Netherlands is sort of trying to extend it to beyond the, the Netherlands, seeing whether or not this concept could happen on a, at a global scale. The the Netherlands gas infrastructure is really interesting. So you've essentially got the north and the south connected by seven gas pipelines running in parallel. Uh, essentially, when you're increasing hydrogen in a gas pipeline, you can increase it up to around 20%. Um, and then you have to make alterations and it has to basically go to 100% hydrogen uh, and no natural gas. So by having these seven in parallel, as natural gas demand starts to fall off and hydrogen demand starts to increase, essentially what you can do is you can take one pipeline at a time and make that run solely on hydrogen. So you can gradually increase the blending of hydrogen into all of the pipelines. And then once you reach that uh, critical level, one pipeline becomes fully hydrogen, the rest go back to being all natural gas. And you just repeat that process over and over again until you've suddenly got seven hydrogen pipelines in this natural hy national hydrogen network, which the Netherlands think could be in place from 2031. Obviously, other countries have networks that are composed slightly differently um, and don't have as many parallel pipelines running at the same time. So it is slightly more difficult to suddenly shift to hydrogen without having a disruption on the um, on the demand side. You're, you're not talking about distribution network here for for homes. You're talking about this being an industrial distribution network. Yeah, so this is largely from infrastructure, uh, industri industry, so industrial clusters, uh, seaports. And there's also within this plan for the, um, the Dutch network there's also a planning connections for two areas in germany and one area in belgium so it is really sort of aiming to set up this uh, initial sort of hybrid hydrogen infrastructure within europe and exports and and, and exports. therefore and presumably all this hydrogen is coming from uh, wind turbines in operating in the north sea uh, and and electrolysis operating in the north sea and effectively coming to uh, the ports of uh, sort of rotterdam and amsterdam and and being uh, pushed into a pipeline from there yes right and uh, it's not it's not it's not just the hydrogen being produced in the, the netherlands as well you've got to look at where the netherlands is situated uh, and this could be hydrogen that's being produced in the UK. It could be hydrogen that's being produced in Denmark, flowing basically through uh, Amsterdam as a hub, and then maybe into Belgium, into into um, uh, into Belgium, into Germany. So it's it's really setting uh, Amsterdam up as a hub. Also, you could have hydrogen um, being delivered as liquid hydrogen or ammonia into Amsterdam as a port, um, if that's how it's being delivered, and then distributed from there. So again, it's yeah setting the Netherlands up as yet yeah, a hub for hydrogen as potentially it has been a bit of a hub for uh, natural gas in the past. Yeah, I mean, what's your sense for how, are they ahead of the game or are they just the first to articulate a plan because they're a smaller country? I mean, I know we've had trials in both the UK and Germany for um, uh, using gas in, inside, uh, using hydrogen inside gas networks. Uh, and there were some reports you wrote up maybe two years ago. So what's your feel? Is Are they ahead of the, of the game? Will they be the model everyone follows? They're among the front of the pack that's for sure um they it's interesting because obviously that the netherlands has such a large dependence on natural gas for its economy uh, in terms of natural gas storage in terms of its industry so it does have arguably the most to lose uh, through this transition away from natural gas and towards hydrogen so there is this imperative to invest in hydrogen early on 
Um, obviously, you've got the same with countries like um, like the UK. Um, but I think it is some. Yeah, it probably it probably is ahead of the game. I think it is, it is lucky, obviously, that it has this situation in terms of its network. But uh, the Netherlands definitely has um, punched above its weight so far in what it said it's going to do with hydrogen. Um, I can't remember exactly how many gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity it's promising by 2030, but it's definitely larger than what you'd have expected from a country of its size. And Kasuni, uh, the company. I mean, that's is that um, is that an independent company or is that owned by one of the big players? So, Gasuni is half owned by the Dutch government, uh, and the other half is split between uh, Shell and Exxon Mobil. Um, but this pro this project, yeah, it will probably see the country shift its focus more towards being a TSO, a transmission system operator within the country's hydrogen network, and also with this sort of move towards offshore hydrogen production it will also move to being this offshore operator as well so presumably this this kind of thing will be expanded onto these offshore wind substation islands that have been talked about is that still a thing connecting all the north sea countries yes i mean that that very much depends on the obviously the, the pipelines don't exist out to those um places yet so the question will be there whether or not it's cheaper to produce the electricity at these offshore wind farms, transport it uh, onto shore and then to produce the hydrogen there, or whether or not it'll be cheaper to build a pipeline and then to produce the hydrogen on site. Um, that that debate is very open, although I, I would probably lean towards it being a, a shift of electricity and then production onshore is just a slightly more flexible option. Because the Netherlands is, has just these amazing port facilities ready to be used. Exactly. I would think in terms of total electrolyzer capacity, if the Netherlands has 3.5 gigawatts and it's a leader of the pack, well, that's a country of 17 million. Uh, all the other countries around here have some North Sea offshore wind going on. You've got Belgium, 10 million. Um, the UK will contribute a bit. And then Denmark's another 10 million. You've got the northwest of Germany. Perhaps you even have Norwegian involvement down the line. So maybe this 3.5 gigawatts from the Netherlands by 2030 equates to maybe 15 gigawatts in total in the North Sea, if you're being a bit optimistic. I think you're right. Um, I think the North Sea will be an absolute hub of hydrogen. You've got to bear in mind that offshore wind is Europe's best bet for producing excess energy. Um, so, it, I mean, it's due to its high capacity factor at points where all of there's high winds in the North Sea. At some point in the future, there probably will be a point where a lot of northern Europe is being powered solely by offshore wind, if not more. So there'll be this excess of offshore wind being produced to produce hydrogen. Uh, and yeah, it could be it could well be to the, in that 15 gigawatt range. And especially when when there's that need for natural gas, the natural gas, natural gas infrastructure of that part of the world to be trans, uh, transferred towards hydrogen. And to a certain extent, that's what the companies that are operating in that uh, in that part of the world are relying upon. And I think 15 gigawatts of electrolyzers probably translates to 30 gigawatts of wind, offshore wind. Uh, yes, you're probably right. Um, yeah, but I mean that—that's I'd say that 30 gigawatts of wind is is going to be far below what we see in terms of offshore wind capacity in the North Sea. Um, I mean, 30 gigawatts of wind purely for the electrolyzers. Never mind the rest of the grid. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine that, but it'll be solely dedicated towards hydrogen production. If obviously, if you're um, dedicating, you you would just do a one to one. You do 15 gigawatts of offshore wind to electrolyzers, but. Um, well, I'm thinking in terms of capacity factor. Uh, yeah, but obviously it's, it's all in the North Sea. So when the wind's not mm. blowing there, it's not blowing there. Um, yeah, so, so you, you mix in batteries and you'd also need maybe, you know, the, the onshore sources as well, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, in terms of diversifying your uh, power supply to provide 24-7 electrolysis, they will need um, a, a variety of things, which is a, a why I think generally electrolysis onshore makes a bit more sense. But that being said, 
it depends very much on if, if electrolyzers fall in cost as we expect they might then it might become an absolute no-brainer just to have one installed and, and is it just a matter of electrolyzer cost or is there also this very important distinction between the aem and the pem electrolyzers with one being cheaper and therefore better to just let it run when there's power so yeah it, uh, good, good question um the in reality, what we're looking at at the moment with these projects, especially offshore wind, is we'll probably be looking at PAM electrolyzers. And the reason for that is they they are much better at scaling up and down with output uh, and obviously with uh, offshore wind and onshore wind to some extent. The, the variable output is, is fairly... It's not it's not predictable really and it's fairly dramatic. So it's not like uh, AM electrolyzer where they much rely much more... Uh, solidly on full supply so if you're looking at pair directly pairing a hydrogen facility with an offshore wind facility you're looking at PAM electrolyzers if you're looking down the grid further uh, towards the user end where you can guarantee 100 uh, percent uh, basically that you'll have 100 percent of the energy you need to supply the electrolyzer for 100 percent of the time then that's when you start moving towards um, alkaline electrolyzer uh, aem electrolyzers um, and they start having sort of the benefits of being um slightly more reliable and made out of slightly better materials as well um that, that brings us to you simon um have you noticed anything in the issue that uh, piques your interest or you need explaining further well yes it was uh, a little item worth noting in uh, in the, the the back of the newsletter or the the world of renewables this week on the, the website and it was about um german plug-in vehicle sales and we, it's just a, a little mention we we said um uh, it's 26% of all car sales in June of this year, and that's slightly up from last year. And I was just thinking about, in terms of Germany and, and many other um, Western economies, about the, the the pressure of you know inflation or possible recession, and if whether though that kind of growth will still continue in EVs. Oh, I think. Um... I think that that's that's you can tell that from the piece itself. This is a car market um, still down eighteen percent on last year, which incidentally was probably down thirty percent on the year before. Um, this this is this is a an industry that is in recession and has been for a long time um, since since twenty nineteen. So so to have car sales uh, EV sales increasing in a declining market is uh, as a percentage uh, you know is. Um, it clearly, EVs are going to continue to sell. Um, look, there's a whole feeling out there that if the government and the utility companies can't fix my energy prices, I'd better fix them myself. If I could put solar on the roof and I can build a battery, I can recharge my car for nothing um, you know, and buy an electric vehicle. Everyone's starting to get that idea. Everyone who can afford to do that is starting to get the idea. As entrepreneurs say, well, what about the poorer man? How can we fund a lease sort of purchase for that scenario for them? Um, entrepreneurs will enter this market and, can, and, and accelerate the, you know, because at the, at the moment people say, oh, I can't afford to do it. But but slowly vehicles, finance vehicles will come into being, which make that happen. And I, I think this goes up and up and up. We, we have seen markets um, driving from the 25% up, if you take somewhere like Nor Norway, up to well over 80% of all vehicles purchased now in, in a month or a year. But 
I mean, that's a, a very small market with, with you know, um, only a few thousand sales uh, a month. But um, th- that's that's the shape the markets will take. Uh, Sweden's heading in the same direction. Germany is. Germany comes from a position where it was behind everyone else. You know, most of the German cars were, they didn't have one of their major uh, sellers, car car designs, um, in e-versions, EV versions. Now, you know, uh, Volkswagen has done an amazing job of going from we hate EVs to we love EVs in a very short space of time. Um, Yeah, the... The, the Fiat 500, which is uh, this month Germany's best-selling car, has also been the best-selling car in Italy and France. Um, Fiat were the same. They didn't want to embrace um, electric vehicles with one of their main designs. But the Fiat 500 is one of their main designs. It's been a colossal success. Um, when brands that you trust start trusting the you know the future technology, then, then uh, an avalanche happens. So, yeah, uh, if Germany enters... Uh, a proper recession. I don't see that being a problem for EVs, but I see it being a serious problem for ICE vehicles. I mean, we're all entering a recession, let's face it. Technical recession based on the price of energy. There's nothing um, nothing that we can do to avoid that. Europe is heading for a recession. Um, America is perhaps the only place that's in any way um, uh, got some resistance against that, which is why everyone's shifting out of euros into the dollar. Uh, while last week the euro had parity with the dollar for the first time in I don't know how many years. Probably since it started. Since it started, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, this whole energy problem, I mean, that's the thing I keep coming back to is the Ukraine war didn't make this situation. We were always going to have a shortage of gas. We could see China's use of gas going up um, the amount of gas being used in Japan going up and Korea, um, our total dependency on gas in the UK for heating in Germany, fifty percent of uh, is is gas; the rest of it's oil. So, I mean, there there was a constant drain on the world's gas resources, and it was always uh, um, going to hit a crisis. Um, the the war the war just made it happen overnight rather than happen gradually over a five-year period. And, we, and and until we remove our reliance on gas, that that's, um, uh, that, that's going to stay the situation. Uh, and we can't remove our reliance on gas for five to seven years. So that's, it's set in until almost 2030, which, which just makes ele- electricity from solar and uh, wind so much cheaper um, than, than, uh, than gas throughout that time. Okay, so we can see this on our website. Um, the issue is free. You can read it for nothing. You can have it sent to you. you know, sign up. Um, the paid services are all in our forecasting section. And the whole idea of our weekly analysis is to give you an idea behind our thinking so that you can uh, uh, see that the quality of what we produce in our forecast and data is worth purchasing. Um, go to the website. Um, you can you can sign up online. Um that's that's it for this week tie tie it up there and we'll be back next week with an edition of um of the rethink energy podcast